This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Think the contents of your smartphone are private? Well, think again if you plan to head to the States this summer. Civil liberties groups are warning that Canadian border guards have powers you might find surprising. It isn't every day that a Senate committee examines legislation and makes notable changes against the wishes of the government. But that's what happened last month as a Senate committee reviewed Bill S-7, which raised significant privacy concerns regarding the legal standard for searches of digital devices at the border. A chorus of opposition led by Senator Paula Simons led to changes in the bill, with the chair of the committee acknowledging that, quote, we did not have one witness except the minister and the officials say that the new standard was a good idea. University of Calgary law professor Michael Nesbitt, who teaches and researches in the areas of criminal and national security law, appeared before the committee to argue against the government's proposed approach. He joins the podcast to talk about the bill, the changes at the Senate, and what lies ahead as the bill moves to the House of Commons in the fall. Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, I'm glad you, you've come on. You know, Bill S7 largely flew below the public's radar screen. I mean, in some sense, that's not surprising. Not many Senate bills attract a lot of attention. But I think at this moment, as we recorded, it provides a really interesting case study on a government bill that raised privacy concerns, didn't get a lot of attention. And then suddenly you had a Senate committee persuaded and in part by you, as you were one of the people that appeared before the committee, that there was a problem in need of fixing. I think it's fair to say that that doesn't happen every day. And and for those of us concerned with any number of different bills headed to the Senate provides a little bit of a ray of hope. So I'd like to use this podcast to talk a bit about what happened and then also focus on whether there's some lingering concerns with the bill, given that this unusually for bills started in the Senate, it will head to the House in the fall. Why don't we start more broadly, though, with a bit of background on when what happens when travelers are at the border, assuming that they can get their passports sorted out. Um, when they cross the border, what uh, what powers do this, does the CBSA have when it comes to searching digital devices? You know, are there differences between digital devices, let's say, and our physical luggage? Yeah, and this is this is that question gets to where all of this is coming from. So the, the powers at the border more generally depend on sort of you know in a way who you are, right? Are you a traveler? Are you picking someone up? You know, where are you standing in the building? Uh, but it also depends on what they're searching. Um, And then you have different grounds that are required to uh, be met in order to justify different types of searches. Um, What had been happening, at least up until these recent cases, which brought about this Senate hearing, was digital devices were being treated as quote unquote goods um, under Section 2 of the Customs Act, where where it was defined. And so this is old legislation, and it's based primarily on case law from the 1980s. So old case law, old legislation. And so digital devices were essentially being treated like your suitcase. So, uh, you know, we, we, we decide something's fishy. We want to search someone can sort of perhaps do a pat down, uh, ask them a bunch of questions and we can search their digital devices. So that's, that's the essence of what had been happening at the border, I suppose, until now. How do, how do they address digital devices? You know, there's often talk for people looking for advice about what to do when they cross the border. And, and sometimes you hear about the, 
the notion of, of shutting off the internet on your device as, as a means of limiting potential search solely to what is on the device itself rather than what's accessible from the device. Um, is that a, a legal requirement that arises from the CBSA? If not, is it something that we could see included in the legislation? How, do, how does that play out? Yeah, and th this is one of the things we'll, we can get into with respect to how the how the bill that is still going through, um, I guess, the House now it could be improved. What they've done is is they have internal requirements within the CBSA. So their internal requirements have sort of said, as a matter of practice or policy, we're going to turn off your network access when we're searching those devices. That's not in the Customs Act. It's not law. You know, w whether there are other requirements, again, is just down to policy, which is made internally uh, without public consultation, without democratic debate. It, it, not saying that's always bad, but th th that's how it's happening on what are actually some very big issues, particularly when you get to uh, the topic we're discussing now, which is digital devices, which are such hold so much information, personal information. Sure. No, and certainly it's not just the information that, that we put on them directly, but of course, as we move to cloud-based services, and we move to, we're, we're at the use of cloud-based services, it's it's everything that we can access through those devices that becomes so relevant. Now, now you mentioned old case law, and uh, the impetus for this bill was the Canfield case. Uh, can you talk a bit about that case and how it was addressed? I know it comes out of uh, Alberta. Yeah, so we, we've been, many of us who sort of watch this kind of stuff in the law have been, frankly, waiting for this type of case for some time. I mean, I've had students for the last five or 10 years writing uh, on how odd it is that your digital devices can be searched as though um, they were a piece of luggage, right? As though those would have similar things in them. So so no surprise here. So what, what happens is we get, uh, it's actually two individuals, Mr. Canfield and Mr. Townsend, and they're caught separately at the border, but the cases are combined because the subject matter is very similar and the, um, the constitutional challenge is, is essentially the same. And that is, they're both caught with child pornography at the border. The Canfield case in particular, which is, which is the, really the, the fact scenario we're talking about was, um, there was concern that he was a sex tourist traveling to Cuba. And that as a result, he might have child pornography on his digital devices. So um, it, when we say digital devices, that could be your phone, that could be your computer, it could be an iPad, a tablet of some kind. So he gets to the border and the officer does the usual, you know, the guy's coming into the country. He notices that he's a little too verbose in his answers. Uh, he starts to get a little sweaty um, and they decide they're going to send him for sort of secondary screening and they get into secondary screening and ask him, you know, do you have child pornography on your cell phone? He says, maybe, I don't know. That leader says, yes. So they take a cell phone. They ask him for his password. This is an interesting one too, from the criminal law perspective, which is where I normally deal because a police officer asks you for your password, you say, good luck with that. Uh, but, you know, CBSA internal rules say we're not allowed to ask you for your password for the apps you're in, as I understand it, but we're allowed to ask you for the password of your phone. So they get into your phone and and they find child pornography uh, both on uh, Mr. Canfield and Mr. Townsend's digital devices. And so we end up with this constitutional challenge, which is we're not denying that uh, the crime has been committed. What we're saying is you had no right to discover the crime in the first place. You, you, you no right to the, the way you did search the the phones and 
the lower court in here in Alberta says, no, it's fine. Uh, we have this case from 1988 that says, you know, goods are different. Um, this is like a suitcase, no problem. Gets to the Alberta Court of Appeal and they say, no, 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 this is, you know, your digital devices do not look anything like a suitcase. They go through the long line of Supreme Court cases we now have, which that case, but all sorts of inf private information, right, which is on your phone, your banking apps, um, photos with your family, accounting documents if you're a lawyer, solicitor client documents possibly at the border that you'd be worried about if you're a doctor, you know, client files, all sorts of stuff, right? So they, they say, no, 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 there's a difference. And, you know, it's one thing to say at the border because there's a reduced expectation of privacy, understandably so, right? It's a border, we need security, people are worried about you know, airplane security and all that sort of stuff getting into the country or meeting our international obligations. So there's a reduced expectation of privacy, but look, that doesn't change the fact that there has to be some standard by which for a digital device you are articulating the justification for the search and so they say and as we understand the legislation that you know that there's no mention of digital device in the legislation so if you're treating it as goods then we're, we're going to essentially strike down the this as you know part of the goods under section 99 of the customs act and so what you have is then essentially at least in alberta you have striking down this piece of the legislation, which means who knows how you can search digital devices in Alberta. So what they do is the very common thing is as happens in law, which is sort of they say, you got about a year to a year, year and a half, I forget what it was exactly, to figure this out, government, um, at which time, you, you know, the, our ruling will essentially come into effect, right? So you, you can fix this by legislation. That actually passed, um, That's that time limit was up uh, and didn't get renewed, which put increased impetus on uh, for a bill to sort of clarify what's happening here so that that i think that's fair summary yeah, absolutely so that's a great ba that's a great background on sort of what led the government to move in the area it wasn't that they necessarily put this in their electoral platform or anything like that rather they had a had a case that essentially forced them to act even if it they took a bit more time than the, the court had had wanted to see so that leads us to bill s7 uh, what did so? What does the government do in response in that bill? Yeah, so the, the government. I mean, this is an interesting one, just procedurally, right? Because they go back to court and says, "No, no, no, don't worry. the The government is acting. We just need a little more time. They just haven't quite figured it out yet." And the court says, "Well, we don't really see anything in the works." What they don't say is what is in the works is an independent senator has put forth a bill, uh, which I just think is. You know, it, it never came up in the case law, but I, I, I thought it was interesting, right? Because what you're essentially saying is independent senator legislation is actually government legislation. That's that's actually what this is, right? That's a, sort of an admission of of that fact. But nevertheless, uh, th that's you know how everyone has treated it without comment. So I, I suppose we have at least some independent senators are clearly we may as well just call them. What they are whatever party they're in right so this is a liberal senator essentially who puts forth legislation and and he the legislation is pretty simple you know there's a, there's a bunch of little fixes sort of making sure that legislation is consistent across different pieces that will refer back to to you know the relevant sections that will have to change all that sort of stuff but essentially what they do is they introduce a brand new standard they say if you have a reasonable general concern as a border officer then you can search the digital devices. And that's really where, and again, credit here to, you know, Senator Paula Simons in particular for really making this a, a national issue by speaking out, um, writing articles on it, 
uh, to try to get the public involved in a way that some of the rest of us probably can't do given our positions. Uh, the, the, she just, you know, she, she's a louder voice um, and a bigger audience. And so she really brought it, I think, to, to the fore, to the public consciousness, to the extent it didn't reach the public consciousness, which is what the heck does reasonable jet, where, where'd you come up with this standard? Like, why is that your solution? You're right. And, and Senator Simons has appeared on this podcast in the past. I mean, she's involved in so many really important digital issues. Why don't we talk about the different standards that, that are out there and then sort of you could, you could provide some insight if there is any uh, on what the government had to say about what this new standard uh, would mean. So I know familiar standards would include reasonable belief or reasonable suspicion. Can you talk a bit about those standards and do we have a sense of why the government didn't, didn't try to implement in this bill one of the one of the known standards where there is a fair amount of case law involved and instead went with this entirely new one sure I'll, I'll give you the really short punchy answer and then i'll explain it a little bit and the short punchy answer is in law we have two standards usually uh, if you're going to have a standard which is reasonable suspicion or reasonable grounds to suspect they're often used interchangeably or you have reasonable and probable grounds or reasonable grounds to believe. They're well known under the Customs Act. They're well known under criminal law. They're well known in the court system, uh, fully understood. Lots of case law explain what they mean. Uh, we'll get into a sec what, what they mean in sort of a sentence each, um, but really clear, right? Uh, lots to go on. Reasonable general concern no one's ever heard of before. Uh, why did they go this route? We have no idea. They honestly didn't stand up and justify it. Uh, there was no definition given in the proposed legislation. There was no definition given publicly. Um, there were, you know, at the Senate hearings, there was no definition given. There was no real explanation. Uh, it was sort of implied that it was just a different standard than the other two and a different standard was needed. Um, it's uh, hard to imagine what that different standard would be without going the step further and saying what you're really talking about is you want a lower standard than reasonable grounds to suspect. Um, but it, the government seemed unwilling or, or the bureaucrat, whoever was responsible for this <laughs> seemed unwilling to come out and sort of explain, uh, you, you know, if it wasn't a lower standard, then why bother? And if it was a lower standard, let's admit it's a lower standard and then have that open discussion. Uh, so, so in essence, we have a brand new standard that we don't, we, we don't, we have no idea what it meant. Uh, that, that was the proposed reasonable grounds to, uh, to suspect is, I think there's a case called R versus stairs recently from the Supreme Court. And I think it, it explains it really well because it, it gives you insight into the fact that this really isn't that high a standard to begin with, right? So it's, it's not when we're looking at reasonable grounds to suspect, we're, we're not talking about the super high standard for searches, uh, that would have, totally obstructed border guards from doing their jobs or at least seen from the outside and unless there's more there that you know hasn't been publicly divulged in terms of what has to happen at the border but stairs says reasonable grounds to suspect really requires only a constellation of objectively discernible facts assessed against the totality of the circumstances in other words can you point to some objective evidence some sort of facts that are specific to the individual and the broader context that would lead you to suspect that maybe there might be, in this case, child pornography on the phone. I actually rereading the case for this podcast, I'm pretty sure they would have had reasonable grounds to suspect if the border guard had articulated it properly. <laughs> uh, if this had been the standard, I, I still think they would have, uh, they, they, they certainly could have met it fairly easily. 
there's also a higher reasonable uh, grounds to believe standard. That's not really implicated here because that's not what the legislation has been changed to. Uh, the more common one in the if, the, if if they want to do a search of your body, like a, a strip search at the border, it's reasonable grounds to suspect. If they want to open your mail, if you're sending mail across the border, it's reasonable grounds to suspect. So super common used throughout the Customs Act, um, used in case law for border things uh, used in sort of similar circumstances to digital devices, right? Something more personal, like a, something approaching a strip search for your mail rather than your baggage, that sort of thing. Okay. So, so well-established standards, principles that were already out there. Uh, I think you, you already mentioned it, but just to, I suppose reiterate, you know, what, what were the concerns with the government coming out with sort of just an entirely new standard where there is no background and, you know, what, if any, defense did the government provide for it? Yeah, we had all sorts of great submissions if people want to look them up. I think a lot of them are online. The Privacy Commissioner offered some, um, Canadian Federation of Law Societies, um, a number of activist groups. I'll, I'll tell you the one I started with, which is, you know, I'm just a professor who follows this. I'm not a particular activist in any regard. My concern was if you're going to come up with a new standard, not divulge what it means, you're talking about five to 10 years of litigation. Right. So, so your first concern is we have complete uncertainty for the next half decade to a decade at the border, which is bad for security and the border guards and is bad for the privacy rights of the individuals and travelers, Canadians and non Canadians who are crossing the border who don't know what the rights are at the border. So when you have clear standards, uh, why introduce this uncertainty and cost? That's millions of dollars of public funds going towards litigation. To resolve this conundrum and at the end of the day what are you going to end up with you're going to end up with something that says it can't be reasonable general concern in the way that i would intuitively understand that because the concern can't be purely general it's got to be at least somewhat specific to the individual and if it's got to be at least somewhat specific to the individual that starts to sound like a constellation of contextual factors both general and specific that might lead you to suspect that maybe something is being done that's a particular is being done that's illegal here. In other words, reasonable grounds to suspect, right? So save yourself the time and the money and the uncertainty and the possible rights violations and the possible, you know, security concerns and just make the change in the first place. Uh, if it alternatively, I guess if you, if you got something else, if you got a definition, throw it out there. So we all know and save ourselves these problems. That, that brings me to the, the next concern, which, which a number of people, I think rightly, argued, I, I did as well, but I think some, some uh, put a greater emphasis on it, particularly those who are sort of involved in, in privacy activism. And that was, when you talk about a reasonable general concern, you're starting to talk about non-specific stuff that isn't necessarily associated with the individual. And that is going to bring in implicit biases and stereotypes, right? So that's where you get into the real concerns about you know, if it's not specific to the individual and the day or a specific threat, right? If you don't know, we're worried about a 22 to 25 year old male coming through off this particular flight. If you're just saying that generally we have a concern at the border. Well, to be honest and to be fair to the border guards, I always have a reasonable general concern at the border. We know criminality takes place. We know it's a really serious um, security threat if there is a breach, right? So the, there should be a reasonable general concern that all times, which means no standard at all. The alternative to no standard, essentially no standard at all, is it means something, but it means exactly what it says, a general concern. 
uh, which makes you think, again, getting back to a simple biases, but stereotypes, racial profiling, uh, profiling on you know, ethnicity or national background, all those sorts of things, right? You start to get worried about because now you're talking about a border guard exercising their in judgment based on nothing specifically articulable with respect to the individual, just their general concerns. I think you've done a really nice job of, of highlighting not just the uncertainty that the proposed definition would have raised, but the harms that it could have raised as well, that, that it really was a lower standard that, that, that would attract a number of different concerns. Now, now, as we mentioned, you appeared before the committee, raised these concerns, and it was really part of what was essentially almost a unanimous chorus uh, of experts who were uncomfortable with the approach. Indeed, I think uh, the committee chair noted that it was that the minister and government officials were basically the only ones defending the standard and just about every witness they could find was critical of it. Uh, so how does the, so the committee clearly was persuaded. Uh, how does it go about solving the issue? Yeah. So this is, this is great, right? As the, the sort of the big news story here is a bunch of senators who didn't necessarily fully understand the law were given a piece of legislation and a border context and did a really good job of looking to people from Ontario and Quebec and the East and the West and the prairies and you know, all over Canada and said, what do you think? And then when they got basically unanimous feedback, they said, yeah, okay, that makes sense to us. And they made the change. So they changed the legislation from reasonable general concern to reasonable grounds to suspect, which is consistent with other areas of the Customs Act, as I said, um, with respect to strip searches and mail and, and a variety of other things as well. So a standard that's well understood or should be well understood to the border guards, well understood to courts who are dealing with border, um, frankly, just well understood to courts because we deal with it daily, basically in Canada on the criminal law side, it attaches to some sorts of production orders and all that sort of stuff too. So, um, so clear, well understood standard with a long history and they make their place. It's, it's, you know, it, the best of democracy in action in a way, right? It's you know, thoughtful people, um, making changes, but continuing to press ahead with legislation that was deemed needed. So. Um, big credit to the to the senators for engaging so thoughtfully and then and then making what actually isn't that big a change, um, but is an important change. Yeah, no, you're right. We don't hear a lot a lot about these kinds of changes. And uh, it, it's always gratifying when uh, the community speaks up on the issue and, and they actually are heard. Sometimes you feel like you're speaking into a bit of a void. Uh, that, I guess, brings us to where we are now. So the committee made the record recommended these changes or brought it out of committee with the change that you just described senate passes it it goes on to the to the house now with so much attention focused on specifically on that issue um does did that in any way in your view anyway overlook some of the other potential issues or concerns that might have also been raised in the bill so much focus on this standard issue were there other things that the bill could or should be doing that as we think about the prospect of further reform and other hearings at the house level we got to start paying attention to. Keep in mind, I'm a pedantic lawyer about this stuff, right? So uh, I'm probably going to want more specifics than maybe the average person or politician. But absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't fault anyone. I, I focus primarily on that issue because I thought it was the most important one. Uh, because if we get that right, then the rest is, is you know, it's not unimportant, but it, it's of lesser importance, right? That was the big issue in responding to the case and responding to the pros legislation and creating certainty and protecting rights, and frankly, in protecting security. Um, you, you know, uh, if you're, if you're just randomly focusing on 
you know, general concerns. You're not focusing in on targets. <laughs> uh, so, so, so really important change. But there wasn't much in the legislation, which is what I started off saying, other than other than you know some technical changes and, and essentially this um, big issue. And so, to me, the the privacy commissioner, the office of the privacy commissioner, did a really good job of raising some of the concerns. But I'll I'll, I'll mention a few, um, and they are they are actually borne out by what CBSA appears to be doing, which is they're going to enact regulations. So lawfully enacted, uh, they will be legally required. Um, but they're going to be regulations that essentially say what the border guard, uh, border officers have to do at the border when searching a cell phone. A and so we get back to the, the initial issue, which is, but that's done internally. And it's great if they're doing consultations, but we don't know if they're going to listen to the consultations. We don't, they, they're not, you know, it's, it's going to be mostly bureaucrats. So they're not, um, they're not required to. Uh, there isn't the public pressure to re respond to public criticism or consultation in the way that there might be for a, an MP where you can phone their office or you know, be in the front page of the Globe and Mail. Um, and, and it looks like the regulations from what we've seen are pretty short. Like they're essentially saying, turn off the network access, which, which we already knew they were doing. I mean, it's good to see it as sort of a legal requirement. Um, and then, you know, six or seven other things. Uh, that you're going to do while accessing the digital device. What's not in there is all sorts of stuff that I would expect to see if I if it was warranted activity in the criminal realm, uh, and, and not because I'm saying it should be exactly the same as going and getting a warrant and and and. We expect to see it when it's warranted in the criminal realm, simply because it just makes sense. The certain standards just make sense in terms of what you want to think about when you're accessing digital devices. So I, I can give you some examples of that. When you're accessing it, how are you accessing it? Are you using a program? Is the program you're going to use to access the material uh, likely to delete content? Um, should a lawyer or doctor be concerned or a business person be concerned that uh, important documents that they haven't uploaded yet um, are going to be deleted? Will it damage or corrupt files when they're accessing it? Are they accessing it just to see the material or are they? will it download it? If it's downloading it, Will it be kept somewhere? Uh, if it's being kept, how long is it being kept for by CBSA? Who else has access to it? When can they access it? Well, what can be done with that information subsequently in terms of access, information sharing, and so on? Right? None of this is addressed, and and lest that seem too pedantic. And again, I say you know some of some of my broader concerns prob probably would be seen that way to some. Uh, we just went through this three years ago with CSIS. Uh, we call it the the new CSIS Act datasets regime. Now it's a different context, and you're not going to want to do everything that was done there. But it addressed in the legislation all those issues which I just mentioned. Uh, we're seeing a similar thing with police forces across the country that they're having to go through. Sort of how do you access information? What do you do with um, you know, facial recognition technologies? Uh, could they be used as part of the search? You know, all, all sorts of questions that are just not in the regulations at all. And, and unfortunately, haven't been discussed by Parliament, right? And so these are the kind of things when it's this important, when it's this intrusive, that you would rather see open, honest debate with thoughtful politicians talking to those they reach out to. That'll be activist communities, it'll be academics, it'll be experts in the field, it'll be border regularly, you know, lawyers, doctors, business people, et cetera, you know, sort of looking at what they need and make a democratic decision where someone's accountable for the results. And, and so we know uh, what all of those rules are, because right now you're going to see a sort of a regulation appended to the Customs Act 
uh, with, you know, six or seven basic things with respect to what you're going to do when you're um, accessing those digital devices. And so one thing that I hope we'll see when it gets to the house, a little cynical on this one, I think we've, we've had one change that surprising to see a, a big revamp and then go through the process all again, especially because this has been a while <laughs> coming already. Uh, as I said, we're, we're already too late, uh, according to the courts, twice over sort of at this point. But um, but yeah, there are a lot of remaining issues that I think from a privacy perspective, you would want to, uh, you would definitely want to uh, at least have the government thinking about in terms of how they access this. Yeah, no, that's a great answer in terms of highlighting a lot of the miss, the missing aspects in a sense of the bill. Uh, I did one last substantive question. I did want to ask about oversight. You know, you mentioned the interest that the privacy commissioner uh, has expressed and they were putting forward some, some issues. To what extent, what, what is the oversight system in, in this regime? I mean, you've, you've identified all these potential holes. Uh, can anyone take comfort in the, in, in the oversight system or is that yet another area that we could do better? In general, it's been a huge area of concern for CBSA. Let me answer this piece by piece. Uh, the The privacy commissioner, yes, absolutely could provide some. I mean, I, mean, I think it was five years ago, twenty seventeen ish, that the privacy commissioner did their last audit of CBSA. Uh, so certainly, the privacy commissioner could do an audit of certain uses of this sort of thing. So there is a role for that office. Um, that's a good thing. Having said that, you know, it's it's sort of one person in one office uh, with. How many agencies in Canada? You know, anything that's covered by the Privacy Act. <laughs> uh, so, um, so th there's a role for them, but not uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't put all your eggs in in that basket, as it were. Um, for national security stuff, if, if it rises to the level of national security, in the last three or five years, we have now the National Security Intelligence Review Agency and CIRA. Uh, as well as, like, I guess it's still operating, the uh, uh, National Security uh, Committee of Parliamentarians. Um, they could both provide some sort of review, uh, but it would be where it would touch on national security matters. Um, and then what we traditionally have for the CBSA, which has been which has been the problem, which is We've said for a long time the RCMP doesn't have enough review because the only real review of the RCMP is sort of ministerial review if they choose to do it, and then uh, complaints, right? So public complaints. CBSA, not only did it not have another type of review, uh, it didn't even have a complaints procedure. And so we do have another bill right now, I think it's Bill C-20, which is offered to, and we'll see where it is, it's called an act establishing the Public Complaints and Review Commission and amending certain acts and statutory instruments. It, it will extend that RCMP complaints process to the CBSA. So two thumbs up for that. CBSA, now you could, well, if this is passed, uh, you, you could complain. But it'll also extend that whole process to provide a review function. So, uh, so if and when this new body comes into being, it will also, in addition to be able to do complaints uh, from an individual who feels their digital device was you know, unfairly searched or whatever, uh, it will be able to review. So there, there is going to be some review. That's good, we think. But that's all contingent on Bill C-20 passing. Uh, and, you know, again, it, just things have been so slow. Uh, we, we're two years and still going on that one. And I, I haven't seen any indications going to make it through before summer. So we, we shall see on that one. But, but a little bit of hope, at least, <laughs> in terms of review, it, especially when you put those 
sort of together, right? The national security and a new uh, review commission and public complaints and the office of the privacy commissioner um, audits. Right. So, I mean, it sounds, I guess, to wrap up that there, there's a good news story here, you know, a, a, a significant concern with real privacy implications for people at the border. Uh, community comes forward, Senate listens. But as we head to the House, it sounds like if we want to turn this into a great news story, so to speak, um, there's still quite a lot of additional work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. For, for those who are interested in this, lots of lots of things to, to I think to think about to, to reiterate, particularly with respect to what's happening with that information, how it's being stored, by whom, how it's being accessed, um, whether we want regulations doing this internally, which are going to be legally binding, but are going to be done as regulations, rather rather we want MPs to be uh, engaging publicly and transparently. Really interesting area, and uh, one where let's hope uh, the the MPs who will con presumably conduct some of the some of the follow on hearings in the fall are as receptive to getting advice as the the senators were. Uh, the, pa the past recent precedent suggests perhaps not, but uh, hope springs eternal. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.